everyone. Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. This week, we sit with Kane Warwick, DeFi OG and founder of Synthetics. In some ways, last year wasn't a great one for the Synthetic Assets Protocol. As many DeFi projects boomed, SNX price and TVL dropped. Kane says he was too optimistic about how soon Synthetics would be able to scale with optimistic rollups. If he were to do things again, he would probably use Polygon first and move to Optimism once the solution was ready. But last year was also a time to build on a strong foundation. He's looking forward to the months to come when all of that effort hopefully comes to light. With the protocol fully live on Optimism and perpetual swaps expected to be launched on Synthetics too. He's a firm believer that Ethereum and its layer two solutions will capture the most value being built in DeFi and Web3. Kane was building in crypto back in 2017 when most of today's projects weren't around. We discuss how DeFi has changed in that time. He thinks Switzerland-based foundations and labs-style companies are on their way out, as the infrastructure to start out as a DAO right away is already here. The fact that projects can now launch at the furthest end of the decentralization spectrum, thus mitigating some regulatory risk, means tokens can more directly be tied to protocol value. From what Kane said, to me, it seems like DeFi has been building the tools and structures that will allow it to shed more and more vestiges of traditional startups and legacy finance. Before we get to it, here's a word about our sponsors. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure you're getting the best possible price. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha directs your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, Phantom, and Avalanche to find the best price without taking any commissions. Matcha splits your order across multiple liquidity sources. It also allows you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your trades. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp to purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card. Head over to matcha.xyz slash defiant and connect your wallet to start trading. Nexo is a crypto lending and exchange platform where you can buy crypto at the touch of a button using your credit or debit card and start earning double-digit annual interest that is paid out daily. Nexo supports all of the major digital assets, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Polygon, and Polkadot. You can also borrow cash and stablecoins tax-efficiently against your digital assets without selling them. Nexo complies with high-security standards and is audited in real-time. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. Whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most out of your crypto today at nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O dot Unstoppable Domains is the number one provider of NFT domains. With your unique NFT domain, such as camilla.crypto or camilla.nft, you can replace your long, complex wallet addresses, verify ownership of your NFTs, 
Log in to Web3 apps and join tens of thousands of people using them as their Twitter usernames. Better yet, with unstoppable domains, you don't have to worry about gas or renewal fees. Also, you will own them forever. Go to unstoppabledomains.com and get yourname.crypto.nft or a range of other endings for as low as five bucks. Sirion is mission control for Web3, giving users the ability to trade DeFi tokens, transfer assets across chains, and show off their NFT collections all in one place. Sirion offers a multi-chain experience with asset tracking and trading across seven networks, including Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, and BSC, so you'll never miss an opportunity waiting on gas fees to drop. NFT owners can also see their favorite collectibles and art as widgets on their iPhones or Apple Watches and send them to friends and family in a few clicks. Users can explore every corner of the metaverse with Sirion from their web, desktop, and mobile apps. Head to Sirion.io to connect your wallet and get started today. Okay, yay, here we are with Kane Warwick, the founder of Synthetics in the Defiant Podcast. Kane, it's so great to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Kemi. It's, uh, I think this is my first podcast of the year. That's amazing. I was looking back and um, you were one of the first uh, people I, I interviewed for The Defiant, like back in 2019. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. Yeah, I had just like started doing interviews. Uh, I didn't even have a podcast then. It was just like interviews for the newsletter. And you were one of the first uh, to come on. So it's yeah, about time that we had you back. So much has happened since then. Um, and we'll get into all of that, uh, all the latest with synthetics, um, your uh, your move to optimism, uh, and all your larger views on, on the space as well. But to start, I always uh, like to get uh, my guest background and how they got into crypto, how they, what led them to start uh, the project that they're leading. So let's let's start there. Uh, what what led you to found Synthetics? Back in 2014, uh, I started a payment gateway, um, and the payment gateway wasn't uh, sort of designed to handle crypto alone. It just happened to be a very good use case for it. Um, and so basically what we did is we went and we created this um, app, uh, this iOS app, uh, and we deployed iPads into, I think at the time, about 700 locations around Australia. Um, and what it allowed people to do is walk into a local retail store and pay cash uh, for things and, and get that cash converted into you know, some form of uh, digital currency um, in an app or, or something like that. Um, and so we worked with a bunch of different people. But one of the immediate use cases that I saw when we started building this out um, was uh, for the Bitcoin brokerages and exchanges in Australia at the time. Um, so, you know, banks were very adversarial um, back then. They would shut down bank accounts and, and do all kinds of uh uh, crazy things to any crypto company back then, most of which were Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, and they would basically prevent people from taking payments. And so we started rolling this out, I think in 2015 or late 2015. Um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of people that I had spoken to previously, like Asher from CoinJar and, and the Bitcoin.com.au guys, uh, you know, started talking to me about using the service. Uh, and so we, I think we started accepting payments for Bitcoin, like early 2016, something like that. Um, and then throughout 2016 and, and early 2017, uh, you know, it 
ramped up and volume started, you know, getting bigger and bigger. And I kind of got deeper into crypto and, and started looking into it more. Um, and I think it was like late 2016, early 2017 that we started to see, uh, the, the premium, um, that people were paying in Australia for Bitcoin, uh, increase, right? So, you know, previously they'd have to pay a little bit more like Korea, right? Um, you know, there aren't huge mining operations in Australia, or certainly there weren't then. Um, and so it would be quite a bit more expensive to buy Bitcoin locally than it was, uh, you know, to buy it, say, in the US or, you know, in a European exchange. Um, and the reason for that is that there just weren't efficient rails to kind of arbitrage, you know, these premiums and, and get money into an Australia and out of Australia, et cetera. And so I started looking at the idea of stable coins. Obviously we had Tether back then. That was the dominant stable coin. This is pre any regulated stable coins like USDC or true USD. Um, and DAI hadn't launched yet, obviously. Um, and I, and I started looking at the different designs and my view was, you know, coming from a payment background that a closed loop payment gateway, something where you actually paid to transact um, and and those payments went to like a collective pool of people who are um, you know allowing this network to function would be uh, a more optimal design than say charging borrow fees or, or things like that. Um, it turns out that isn't the case, um, but that was the initial kind of design for Haven, which was the precursor to synthetics. And then at the end of uh, of 2018, after Dai had launched and all of the regulated stablecoins had launched, we decided to pivot. Um, and go into like a wider range of assets, so Bitcoin, ETH, and, and you know, all the assets we have now. If you can describe synthetics just like very briefly for for those who are who are not familiar, like what exactly does it do? Synthetics is a little bit like Maker in that it allows for someone to put up crypto collateral um, and borrow against that collateral, and what you borrow is a stable coin that the protocol sort of manages. Um, so in the same way that you put up ETH and you get DAI um, or Liquidy, the same thing, you put up ETH and you get DAI. Um, in synthetics, you mainly stake SNX. You can stake other things like, um, you know, REN BTC and ETH and, and a few other things. Um, but mainly uh, you stake SNX and you get SUSD. So SUSD being the dollar denominated stablecoin within the network. Um, and that part is pretty similar, right? You know, it's just crypto collateralized stablecoin, there's liquidation rates and collateralization ratios and all the things you would expect in, in a crypto collateralized stablecoin. The difference is what we also allow you to do with SUSD is convert that SUSD into any other synthetic asset within the network at this uh, Oracle defined price. So we use Chainlink Oracles to say, okay, you've got SUSD, now you want to buy synthetic Bitcoin. Great. You can buy synthetic Bitcoin. Here's the spot price right now, which is you know, obviously aggregated from a bunch of exchanges and all over um, you know, the, the crypto economy. And you can convert that SUSD into uh, SBTC. And so basically what happens is the people who are collateralizing this network are now responsible for managing uh, the exposure to all these different assets, right? because they're the counterparty to these trades. Um, and so it's a little bit more challenging. Um, and, and a little bit more um, difficult to uh, to kind of be a staker with, within synthetics than say you know something like Maker or, or Liquidy, um, but you get the fees from those exchanges. So rather than paying fees to borrow or some other way of generating um, you know revenue for the protocol, um, it's actually the users of the stable coins of these different synthetic assets that are exchanging between them that generate the fees. Um, so that's kind of the primary difference. Taking a step back on why something like this might be useful 
for, uh, I don't know, people globally. You know, it's like it's this protocol that allows you to mint assets of, of all kinds in a decentralized way. So like what's kind of the, the bigger um, uh, picture for, for synthetics? Like why would this be something that people might want to use? I think a lot of us, you know, back in the day uh, had this idea that, it, you know, synthetics and other things like this even dye would be very useful um, as, you know, a means of payment and, and a way for people to, um, you know, be able to transact uh, globally. But I think we're still probably a little bit early there. Um, so things like, you know, converting AUD into USD or, you know, um, or JPY or, you know, FX exchanging and things like that. Uh, it's just not that much of a use case yet. Um, and I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for that scaling and transaction costs and, and you know, um, all the infrastructure that we need. Uh, most of the, the use at the moment um, for most of these things is speculative. And so synthetics has kind of leaned into this speculative aspect and, and added much more speculative, volatile assets like Bitcoin and, you know, um, and other crypto assets. Um, also things like commodities, you know, gold, silver, et cetera. Um, because, you know, the, the original kind of design of this use case was for people making payments globally, you know, anywhere using Ethereum. Um, but I think, again, we're just not quite there yet. So, you know, the speculative use case still dominates. And why would um, someone want to speculate on synthetics in, and instead of just like going to their local brokerage, for example? Yeah, so I think the, the main reasons are that with synthetics, you have this range of assets that are all in Ethereum that you otherwise might not be able to get that much liquidity into. Um, you know, so especially back when we first started, there was not really a good version of wrapped Bitcoin. Um, and even now we have WBTC, but WBTC is custodial. Um, and so someone who doesn't want, you know, in the same way that you, you might not want uh, a custodial stable coin like USDC, um, you might not want a custodial wrapped version of Bitcoin, right? Um, so you might want a, a purely synthetic, purely crypto collateralized version. Um, the other advantage is you can go from wrapped, you know, a, an equivalent wrapped BTC or synthetic BTC into USD and then into a synthetic version of ETH, and then into a synthetic version of gold. And so you've got this ecosystem of synthetic assets that you can tap into. Um, but I think the other uh, kind of use case is other protocols. So we've seen, for example, with Lyra, um, which is an options protocol, using synthetics as a way to hedge uh, their exposure to the options trades that are happening within their options um, AMM pool. Um, so there, there are a lot of different things you can do when you've got access to this. You can kind of tap into liquidity um, instantaneously and you don't need to go to an AMM or, you know, need a pool. Um, synthetics kind of gives you some of these uh, interesting properties like that. The theme of, of the Defiant is embracing our brand and our name. And um, I'm, I'm interested to hear from my guest what uh, they think makes them defiant. Um, we're all in this industry kind of challenging the old guard, the old finance, old web too. Um, so Kane, what do you think makes you defiant? I think, you know, historically synthetics has been, uh, and, and, you know, maybe myself driving this, um, has been a bit of a contrarian. So, you know, if you go back to the, you know, very beginning of the project, like late, late 2017, when we kind of, uh, you know, emerged from stealth mode, um, this idea, the implementation that we took where we had, you know, proxy contracts, for example, right. Um, and a very centralized, centrally controlled 
protocol um, was really not uh, very acceptable to the community. This idea of like progressive decentralization, like we were one of the first protocols to really lean into like upgradable contracts and, and things like that. Um, and so I think, you know, we believed at the time that this was the optimal pathway. Um, and we got, you know, a lot of criticism for that. It was, it was really interesting to see, um, you know, obviously the, 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 the industry's changed and maybe, you know, the pendulum has swung too far, um, towards, you know, uh, centralized control of, of these protocols. Um, but we've never kind of shied away from doing something that was contrarian or doing something that was, you know, not really acceptable, even within the crypto ecosystem. Uh, if we thought that that was the optimal path, you know, I've always tried to look at each problem you know, on its own merits and say, okay, what is the optimal solution to this problem, regardless of what the consensus is in the community about what you should or, you know, can do. That's so interesting. And so I'm sure if founders and teams have, who are building something from scratch in crypto, have at some point or, or another had to deal with this sort of criticism, uh, which the community is really not shy of uh, voicing. So um, what have you learned from that? Like how, how to get over the FUD? Uh, and I guess like in internal FUD is a lot more um, um, something to be kind of wary about. You know, it's like your own community is telling you that they don't like your your direction. Um, how, how do you kind of overcome that or like uh, what's the balance of um listening to your community but also like following your own vision as a founder i think you have to have high conviction right in this space if you don't have conviction in this space you're just going to have a terrible time um now at the same time if you are overly convicted and not open to you know changing your mind uh based on new evidence you're also going to have a terrible time Right. So it's a very uh, kind of narrow path to navigate where you need to be high conviction, but also very open to new ideas and new concepts. Um, and so I think that that's something that you just kind of hone over time. Right. And regardless of what you do, there are going to be people that come in and are, you know, uh, I mean, we have a FUD channel in synthetics, right? You can go into our Discord and there's literally people like coming up with like interesting ways of like flooding the project. You just have to lean into that sort of stuff, right? And say, well, you know, it's going to happen. You can't hide away from it. I'm in there. I respond to people and sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's dumb. You know, um, it, it's just, it is what it is, right? Um, but I do think that, um, that, you know, if you don't have conviction, around what you're doing and, and you don't, you know, really deeply think about what the specific challenges are that you're trying to solve and, and, you know, the solutions you're looking for, um, then you can just get kind of blown around by, you know, whatever, you know, kind of sentiment is in crypto Twitter or on Reddit or whatever on a, on a daily basis. I want to go back to what you mentioned about uh, progressive decentralization. I'd love for you to just uh, talk about that process of transitioning to a more centralized uh, app, to a more decentralized protocol. Um, and I'm also interested to hear your thoughts on um, whether you still believe that's the best approach. I think back when we started Synthetics, um, in order for us to do, or Haven, I should say, you know, in, in 2017, when we started implementing the contracts, um, the, even the idea of using proxy contracts was really like, you know, it was not not a thing, right? So proxy contracts are something that allows you to deploy a contract and then make a change behind it 
and you know you can change any of the logic right you can just replace the logic right and so back then the idea was you would um you know propose some concept right and you know maybe probably auger is the best idea right you'd say we're going to build a prediction market right and then you'd go and lock yourself in a room for two years or three years and then you would come out and be like here you go here's our perfectly designed thing and you would implement it and it would be immutable code and that would be it right um and in most cases that didn't work out very well right uniswap's probably one of the few counter examples of like deploying immutable code that ended up getting product market fit and even with uniswap now we've got three iterations of those contracts but each one was immutable and then was replaced by a new factory contract so that was just not seen as an acceptable thing to do to have these upgradable systems particularly when the upgrades were managed by a centralized team right um and so you know the criticism that we got was was very very uh you know uh, strong by the time we started to get to a point where people actually cared what we we're doing they were kind of shocked they would find out that you know the, the system was upgradable and, and they couldn't believe it if you go back and look at you know like early 2018 comments on reddit or whatever like some of them were pretty scathing um and so we we got to we got to this point though where i think we were able to kind of demonstrate that this was a workable approach but that was back in 2018 when we didn't really have much tooling. You know, even Gnosis Safe that we use today, and, and you know, a lot of the multi-sigs in, in um, DeFi are controlled by Gnosis Safe, right? Which is not optimal, but it's certainly better than it was back then. The old version of Gnosis Safe, you wouldn't be able to even, you know, uh, run some of these uh, complex transactions that are now implemented. So the tooling just wasn't there. So you kind of had to have some central control in order to have upgradability, and we genuinely believed upgradability was the right thing today i think we're in a different situation i don't think you need to launch with you know a foundation or a not-for-profit and a centralized team and centralized control i think you can do a dow first launch uh and and come out of the gate very decentralized you know you, on different dimensions you can choose which dimensions make sense um but you know a lot of the projects that i work with today I say to them, you know, you don't need to do all of that stuff. The first, you know, 18 months that synthetics existed where, you know, it was a, a not-for-profit foundation that was centrally managed, had employees, all that stuff. Get rid of all of that. Start from, you know, I think for us, it was like one July 2020 or something like that when, you know, we got rid of the foundation and, and we were pure DAO. That's the optimal approach today. Um, but you just couldn't do that back then. That's so interesting because you're right. Like the OG... DeFi protocols like like synthetics maker um it, it like the model was this kind of switzerland based foundation which would control the open source protocol and have like different degrees of control over over the smart contracts um and and you're saying that i mean for synthetics this was the model but you're saying that today that's that's not necessary just because of how the space and infrastructure has evolved yeah, you just, you know, I mean, first of all, I think the idea of having a foundation in Switzerland is just dumb. It's a dumb idea. Um, but it's an idea that, you know, was kind of propagated from a few people being successful. And one of the things in crypto, because there are so many unknowns, and it's such, you know, an imperfect information environment, um, you 
end up with people just kind of forcing you to do things that were already done because it's a bit of a, you know, at least that's a known thing, right? Like, oh, the Ethereum Foundation had, you know, uh, is is domiciled in, in Switzerland. Okay, do that thing. At least we don't have to worry about that aspect, right? Let's just copy that. And so I think that there is a, a lot of that. Um, and whenever you go against the grain and say, actually, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something else. Um, you know, there's a lot of pushback in the space. Um, but, you know, the idea of a foundation that is kind of centrally managed or any entity, right, whether it's, you know, um, a, a for-profit company like a, a, a labs style company, you know, I think is a bad idea. And I think that we are slowly moving away from that. Um, but I think most of the new projects that are launching, um, you know, have the ability and, and should be considering just launching as a DAO immediately. Um, and, and not domiciling anywhere and not setting up foundations, not setting up for-profit companies, just, you know, go and, and launch it out. It's possible to do. You're right, because that's the other model, like Uniswap Labs, Compound Labs, they, they have just like traditional companies and then that's kind of separate from, from the protocol itself. But yeah, I guess like the, the tooling is there and that's definitely what, what I also think is the next wave. Um, but I can see how that's scary for a founder to just like go out there and, and have like this DAO and like not follow the traditional steps of even for like fundraising and going to VCs like or or maybe that's out the window too. Like maybe like Web3 and, and DeFi protocols just like shouldn't be uh, fundraising via VCs or like what's your take there? I think we've kind of come full circle on this a little bit. We started with kind of crowd sales, right? Like, you know, the Ethereum crowd sale was just this open crowd sale, right? And, you know, um, MasterCoin and, and some of the, the previous um, ICOs were just very open public sales. There was no pre-seed and seed and all that sort of stuff. They just kind of went out and said, okay, give us some Bitcoin and, and we'll launch, right? Um, and I think that then there was a lot of pressure over time, you know, between, you know, late 2014 all the way through to, um, you know, 2016 um, from a regulatory perspective and a lot of sort of regulatory uncertainty. And you got, you know, progressively more and more of these raises were done privately, right? And, you know, done through VCs or angels or whatever. Um, and I think that that model has kind of stuck around today, right? It's It's been hard to kind of unseat that model. Um the idea of doing a DAO first raise on chain um, with no entities, et cetera, is a scary prospect, I think, for most founders, right? Because it does go against you know a couple of trends that I think um, have existed for now you know four or five years, right? Um, and so it's not an easy thing to do, um, even if it is the right thing to do. But this is where I come back to my point about high conviction. If you look at all of the information that you have as a founder today and you're about to launch something, you know. My view is if you have the conviction that you're going to do the optimal thing, you're going to solve the problem the optimal way, it's pretty obvious that that solution is just, you know, some kind of on-chain raise, right, directly as a crowd sale. So I think, you know, we started with crowd sales that were only open, you know, no no pre-seeds and seed and series A and all this sort of stuff. And I think we've kind of come full circle where we're almost at a point now where we can we can go back to that model. Um, but, you know, it's still... It's still a challenge. There's still regulatory uncertainty. There's there's all kinds of issues with it, but it is the optimal solution. Oh, that's so interesting. And then that um, on-chain raise can be from just like individuals buying your token. And it can also be via uh, 
DAO funds, right? Like we've seen this this model emerging where instead of traditional venture funds, you have just DAOs who are investing in different projects. So so that that can kind of start to replace traditional fundraising in a way that's kind of more definitive. Absolutely. And you know, I think we've we've seen that with the amount of capital that's in the space, um, you know, most of the, the people allocating capital are now much more open to a direct DAO capital raise, right? Um, I think almost all of the VCs and angels in the space have participated in in some kind of direct DAO, um, you know, raise. Um, so I think that 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 concept is is becoming, you know, again more palatable, right? Um, people are participating in these these capital formation DAOs. You also have um, things like Alan. Um, and you know some of the the launch pads like the the DeFi launch pad. So Alan's my side project where you can go and get a pool of funds basically um, from a bunch of people and then have uh, the ability to put that into a specific deal. So you raise you know one pool of funds, you put it into a specific deal. So you know uh, a, a seed round, for example, for um, a DAO, and then that could be potentially your only raise. And then the next thing you do is like an LBP or some kind of, you know, uh, price discovery event. But again, that's on chain. So you can have, you know, from Dow generation all the way through every single you know component of your capital formation be totally open and permissionless. Um, now, from a regulatory perspective, there's still a lot of uncertainty there. Um, but I think, again, you know, that if you're looking at how to solve this problem in an optimal fashion, um, that that's that's still the way to go. And so does this mean that like every project should have a token to do that i mean they would need to right i don't think every project should have a token i think there are some things that are infrastructure plays for example um where uh it may not make sense to have a token most of the things that are coordination mechanisms for like on-chain activity of some kind right um should have a token because tokens are the optimal coordination you know, uh, mechanism in, in my mind, right? If you have a token, you can create a set of rules. Um, you can ensure that, you know, the people who abide by those rules uh, are rewarded um, either through tokens or through some other mechanism. Um, but without a token, that's challenging um, to implement. Um, and I think that there's also um, just a, a component as well of without a, a token, attention is very scarce in the space. Right. Um, and so competing against projects that have tokens with no token, um, regardless of you know, your view of the value of tokens, is very difficult. So you're almost forced into a situation where um, you, know, you need to design some kind of tokenization uh, of a protocol. Um, but I don't think in every case that's necessary. I think that there are some centralized things. You know, if you're running Infura, should Infura have a token? I don't think so. Um, will Infura have a token? I don't know. But like, it probably shouldn't. I want to speak about your views on like the tokens themselves, um, because at first, like tokens were like utility tokens. It was like that concept of something that you use within the protocol and you use it to pay for different like services. Um, and that's evolved into no, now like the token is really um, uh, uh, something that I means to have governance and have a say on how things are run um, uh, and more sophisticated things like, oh, like it's, it's a way to kind of incentivize assets uh, and for users to kind of stay uh, locked in, in the protocol in some way. So there's been like an evolution of like how tokens are used 
within DeFi. Um, what's what's your take uh, now? Like how how do you think uh, tokens should be used? I mean, utility tokens like you know Swiss Foundations are one of the other dumb crypto memes that I think uh, you know probably um, should have been done away with a long time ago. And I think utility tokens are pretty much dead, right? I think almost everyone knows that utility token where it's like some you know, payment shit that floats around an ecosystem and you use is just, you know, I think uh, someone coined the term friction tokens at, at some point, right? And it's very true. Um, back in the day, though, the reason why people were, you know, um, pitching these utility tokens, right, that were going to be this like little payment method that would float around in their ecosystem um, was, in my view, purely from a regulatory perspective, right? They were genuinely concerned about what the, the implications would be from a regulator if this token were to accrue any value, right? So you had all of these roundabout methods of you know having value accrual to a token without actually accruing value to it, right? Directly, um, you know, I paying revenue or, or whatever, or, you know, paying protocol fees to token holders. Um, so you'd have buybacks and burns, and you know, deflationary economics and all kinds of things. Um, you know, payment fee burns, et cetera, et cetera. All of these weird things that were devised in like 2016, 2017 um, to get around this. Um, and I think this is one of the things that synthetics um, sort of made more acceptable as well, is we just said, that's dumb. That is a dumb way to do things. And actually, what synthetics will do, or what Haven will do, Haven, if you hold it and you stake it, will accrue the fees from within the network. When people pay transaction fees, those fees will be paid to token holders, the end, right? That's how you actually create something that is self-sustaining. Um, and I think that that was at the time, you know, pretty shocking to people, right? They they genuinely were surprised by this. These days, it's not surprising at all, right? You know, there's tons of examples of, uh, of you know, things where not just people who are doing some action. So, you know, Uniswap LPs accrue fees, great, okay. But, you know, actually, like, you know, examples like Curve, right, where, um, you know, the token holders themselves accrue, uh, you know, transaction fees and, you know, from the protocol. Like there's there's more and more examples of this where, you know, the actual protocol fees being paid to token holders. But back then, that was not a common, you know, not a common theme at all. Um, so I do think that, that uh, that's something that has changed for the better. Um, obviously, then Compound came out with this, you know, valueless, um, you know, kind of governance token meme as well um you know between between compound and urine i think were kind of the, the two that really uh drove that that meme and that is interesting again but you know if you look at even the compound launch if you go back to that launch the immediate question that everyone asked of you know compound and robert was when will fees start accruing to this token right like okay great we can like vote on things but like you know when do people actually start to earn protocol fees um and then there was this question of okay well the governance will decide when we turn on fees and how much to charge and all that sort of stuff. So again, all of these things, you know, uh, kind of took time to play out. Um, but you know, back in the day, uh, it was, it was a bit of a scary prospect to go against the grain. And, and so, you know, utility tokens was kind of the dominant meme, but I think it's been replaced by governance tokens and, and tokens that accrue value, which is obviously much more sustainable. The way these things are structured does seem, like regulatory arbitrage, right? Because in the end, what, what's happening is that what the token really is, is a way to represent ownership of a protocol. And that, that looks a lot like a share in, in, a, in, a, in a company, right? So I, I think, you know, like 
in the end, yes, you're like leaving that decision to the community. So it's not centralized. Like it's not like the management team making that decision of um, having revenue go to token holders um, and you're decentralizing that decision. But in the end, that's what these, like what this new evolution of tokens looks more like. Like they look more like like shares in companies, um, albeit like a decentralized organization and not a company. And also like the other difference is that um, it's kind of the token holders themselves and ones who vote on this happening. And it wasn't like a centralized decision. But it, 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 yeah, it is starting to look a lot more like, like stock. I think, you know, you really need regulatory arbitrage when you start from a point where you've got an attack vector for regulators, right? So if you start with a Swiss foundation or, you know, a not-for-profit foundation domiciled in Singapore or Australia or something like that or the UK or, or whatever, um, if you start from that point, or you start with like a lab style approach where you've got, you know, a for-profit company that uh, develops the protocol, but it's, you know, somehow supposed to be separate from that protocol and, and not involved. If those are your starting points, then regulatory arbitrage is critical, right? If your starting point is, this is a DAO from day one, right? It's launched as an open protocol. Anyone can participate. Yes, there are engineers contributing. And yes, there's people that are designing things. Yes, there's people that are, you know, doing comms within the community and providing liquidity and, you know, providing market making. But all of these people are kind of coming together to create this protocol based on some design. And, you know, this is how we did Alien, right? I wrote a spec for a thing based on a dumb thread that Mariano and I started, you know, like nine months ago or whatever. And I said, this is a spec for a protocol. It could work, right? And I put it out there and, uh, you know, a bunch of people came together and said, this is really cool. We want to build it, started building it. And then everyone got together and did, you know, kind of this fair launch of a token um, where it was distributed to SNX holders who kind of helped with the governance uh, bootstrapping. And then, you know, there's liquidity um, farming and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, but it was like there was never a centralized entity at all in, in the entire evolution of it, right? So, um, you know, Alan doesn't have to worry about, uh, I think, regulatory um, attacks in the same way that synthetics did when there was this, you know, uh, not-for-profit foundation in Australia that was, you know, had directors and all of the kind of normal infrastructure you have for, for companies. So now if you're starting directly from a DAO, you don't need to go through all those hoops and you can just directly say, just do the optimal thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just like our token is going to uh, be staked and, and token holders will get a percentage of protocol revenue and that's it. Yeah. And I think, you know, urine is probably the best example of this, right? Because Andre just launched it out, you know, wrote some code and just said, see you later. Right. Um, there was never, you know, and like urine paid the price for this, right? Like, let's not, you know, it's, it's amazing now. And I think, you know, you can look at it and say, like, was that actually, did it need to go through that, you know, trough of disillusionment and pain and suffering that everyone, you know, went through when it was hard to coordinate this thing? But did it emerge on the other side, you know, far stronger for it? Yes. Right. Now, could you find a way to like avoid that, you know, little dip of pain? I don't know. Right. Um, but what I do know is that when you come out the other side of something like that, when you've had this very open and kind of chaotic uh, formation process, if you do emerge on the other side, you are in a far, far better situation. And I think urine is probably 
better position than almost any protocol that you know large scale protocol at least um, in the ecosystem because of that process of how you know what the genesis of yarn was. I want to go back to the synthetics uh, story. So we we were talking about progressive decentralization um, and how that to you is not necessary now um, and. I just want to chat about um, your kind of leaving and then uh, coming back to synthetics. And, you know, like, yeah, I'd love to get some kind of color on on why that decision was made, that you felt you had to come back. Yeah, I, I, like the Kane abandoning uh, synthetics meme, I think, has kind of taken on a bit of a life of its own. Um, it's not the most accurate thing. and And I think... Um, you know, I, I tweeted about this a, a little while ago. You know, I said, like, I have a habit of being overly transparent sometimes, right? That's just the way that I am. I'll, I'll, you know, I kind of throw things out there and, and I'm fairly open about what I think and how I think and, you know, what's going on. And so the blog post that I wrote about, um, you know, uh, it was also it was a dumb joke, right? Like an old dictator appears. Like it was, you know, it was this like dumb meme as well. And I like to, mm -hmm. you know, make dumb memes and shit posts. But I think what it did is it created, um, in people's mind, this idea that like I had left and I didn't really leave. Um, you know, what happened was, um, I took, um, uh, I took a step back from day to day sort of governance decisions. Right. Um, so, you know, we had set up this new governance structure, which was really untested, right. This idea of like, you know, now there's a bunch of people who are, who are doing this, but the idea of having like a delegated, um, democracy, uh, where there's a council of people that's voted in by token holders, and those people can make decisions on behalf of their sort of constituents was not a common thing. You know, it's starting to become a bit more common now. I think it will become even more common, um, you know, over the next couple of years. Um, but really, you kind of had either direct token holder voting, or you had pure delegation to people voting on individual issues right um but it wasn't like this you know council that was elected for a, an epoch of some length and you know they had discretion to kind of make decisions and discuss things and you know um and weigh all the information and then make decisions on behalf of, of token holders um that was a very different model and we didn't know how it was going to go um you know the first month or so of it was very chaotic because uh, I, I had this really stupid idea of like, let's do a liquid democracy so that people could, you know, be removed at any moment if, you know, people, uh, if their token holders decided they didn't like the direction they were going, right? It was a check on power effectively, but it just ended up in pure chaos because the composition of the council would like change on an hourly basis sometimes and no oh, one wow. knew who was, who was in the council, who was deciding <laughs> things. And so it's like a very nice thing in theory, but in practice, it was just utter nonsense and it just didn't work. Right. Um, and so, you know, that was the first month of this council, which was like, um, you know, early, um, uh, earlier last year. Um, and so, um, I think I wanted to give that space, right. There was a new, I wasn't on the council. I wanted to give the council a, a chance to kind of really step in and start to kind of take control of things. Um, and so I stepped back and as I step back from, you know, that kind of frontline uh, discussion and, and decision making, um, 
I, I sort of lost touch with some aspects of the protocol, but like at the absolute, you know, uh, low point of how engaged and involved I was, I was still doing like 20, 25 hours a week, um, of work on synthetics. Right. So it wasn't like I, like I was still having conversations. I was on weekly, you know, product calls. Like it wasn't like I just disappeared and, you know, went to Thailand for six months or something like that and was uncontactable. Um, as, as nice as that sounds sometimes um but yeah but you know like it it um but what it did do is it created some chaos within the core contributors right you know at the time i think we had about 20 core contributors um and me stepping back and not kind of you know pushing uh an agenda and creating you know this narrative of what we were doing um meant that you know these people were spread all around the world most of them hadn't ever met each other um you know they were just sort of looking around going like who is leading this thing right because you know the council wasn't in a position to lead yet right um and so what you had was this leadership crisis and so when i came back it was really to kind of help put some leadership around the the core contributors the protocol itself didn't need leadership i think the protocol was fine the core contributors the people who are building and doing things on a day-to-day basis needed leadership and i think we've now gotten to a point where that leadership is starting to form we've got some senior you know core contributors who um have formed this kind of core contributor committee um they help with you know all kinds of coordination things within the core contributors um and so it's less of a problem today than it was you know uh, a year or so ago got it so um are are you still kind of uh, in that leadership position right now so i'm what happened was i basically said i'm going to run for the council right um so i think in the in the uh, epoch that started on the first of july i said you know we need someone who is going to be uh sort of a gateway between the core contributors and the council right so i'm going to run for the council i'll be one of eight people i still don't have control right um but I felt like after six months, the the council had kind of proven that it was a workable model, right? And it wasn't going to be as much of a, an issue if I was involved with it. Um, and, you know, I'm very opinionated. I have, you know, strong views. There are token holders who were kind of pushing me in the background to, to be on the council. They said, you know, they, they wanted, um, you know, they wanted to see me kind of, you know, step in. Um, obviously, I'm still one of the largest token holders. So, you know, I had a view that I could you know, make sure that my own interests were managed within the council, but it's still one of eight votes, right? Um, and so I'm still on the council. I've still been on the council continuously since then. Um, and what that's meant is that I've had a view into, you know, governance decisions, as well as some of the considerations around prioritization and, you know, engineering challenges and, you know, optimization and all of the kind of background things that have been going on, um, which I think helps. There are other, you know, contributors who are, um, you know, there's two other contributors who are, um, on the council as well. Um, so they kind of help with that process. Um, but it's, it's a very kind of fluid and, and amorphous, uh, structure still. Um, but I think we're getting closer to something that that's workable long-term. What's missing? Just like more structure? I think still more structure, right. Um, and, and processes, um, and procedures, you know, even, to this day, we'll still be proposing, um, you know, uh, there was a, an issue that happened. Um, I had to propose an SIP. Um, I didn't have to, but I thought this was the, the right approach. We proposed this SIP that said, if there's a bug, if a critical vulnerability is found, we need a way of bypassing some of our processes and, and procedures, right? So we have um, a process whereby every SIP needs to be presented to the entire community. Um, you need at least you know five of the uh, council members to be present. It needs to be recorded. 
there needs to be a public record of like why this decision was made. And so um, there are examples when engineers come to the council and say, hey, there's a bug, we need to fix it, right? There's some disclosure from a white hat or something like that. Um, and we didn't have a process to bypass this, uh, you know, this kind of uh, committee and presentation. So I wrote a SIP and said, if all eight of the council members are in agreement, right, if you have unanimous consensus that this thing needs to be done, you can bypass that. That's a process that just didn't exist. And it needs people that are um, sort of very, uh, like, I'm the type of person who I just get into the details, right? Like, I care about the details a lot. And so you need to be very, like, kind of diligent and mindful of what's going on and, and seeing where there are inefficiencies and trying to solve it. And it's just one of the roles that I play. It's really interesting. So through this conversation, we've gone through different kind of mechanisms or innovations from synthetics that really kind of preceded a lot of the the ways that things are done right now. Um, like, okay, like using the native token for staking, like using um, delegates for governance, like all of these things, um, synthetics was pretty early in implementing. And um, liquidity mining was also one of these things that synthetics was really early. So I don't think like a lot of people realize like this thing that's taken off and that's really, um, I think, moving a lot of liquidity uh, in DeFi today, uh, just like token incentives, liquidity mining, yield farms, all of that. It started, I think it started with with synthetics, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So I, I love that uh, to go through kind of uh, what the thinking was uh, that led to that decision um, to, uh, uh, to start doing token incentives. So yeah, so I think that there are two aspects of, of yield farming, right, or or, um, or liquidity mining. One is internal incentives within the protocol. So you know, how do you bootstrap the protocol itself, right? Um, and then the other is uh, like external liquidity, and and we kind of did both of them around about the same time. But I think people remember uh, the yield farming of uh, within Uniswap more, right? Um, so we had this issue where we needed an on-ramp into the synthetics ecosystem. You have this cool property where once you're in SUSD or once you're like in SBTC, you can kind of bounce around between all these different synths really easily. You know, it's very low friction. It's a cool thing. Getting into that ecosystem was hard. There was very little liquidity in and out. And so after Uniswap had launched um, and, you know, it was starting to get traction, we were like, okay, this is really cool. Like, how can we leverage this? And so we decided to build um, this uh, synthetic ETH ETH pool that would be really, you know, have a lot of depth. And we're like, we'll, we'll just pay SNX tokens, right? For people to, to you know, put um, liquidity into this thing, right? Um, and it went from, you know, the, I think like the 50th or something largest pool to the largest pool by like, you know, an order of magnitude or something like that over the course of like two or three months. And all of a sudden people were like, whoa, like, you know, there was this idea that like liquidity was like sticky, it was hard to move. You know, people, uh, there was a lot of friction for people to move that, you know, was nonsense, right? Like you could literally, you know, we, by the time we got to like DeFi summer, you could like click your fingers and have like a billion dollars worth of TBL, right? Um, and so I think that, um, I think that what we proved is that liquidity, uh, it was very mercenary 
and that people would move around very quickly, that they were on top of this um, and that markets were actually much more efficient than people assumed in terms of like liquidity provisioning and, and what have you. Um, and it also was, you know, I think one of the big drivers for an early use case of, of Uniswap, which was like, you know, price discovery and, and all the things that kind of came later. So it was definitely one of those early experiments that, uh, that worked out very well for us. Liquidity being um, really mercenary. What what can projects do to just like get people to to stick around? Like what what have you learned uh, from that so far? So I think the the other side, you know, the other facet of this was like bootstrapping synthetics itself, right? So we felt like we suddenly had this thing, um, you know, in in early 2019, where people were interested in synthetic Bitcoin. There was no way to get Bitcoin exposure on, on Ethereum back then. I mean, there were a couple of ways, but they weren't very good, right? Um, and so, you know, getting synthetic Bitcoin exposure on Ethereum was really cool. It was a use case where people were like, okay, cool. You know, now wrapped Bitcoin, you know, has billions of dollars with the TVL, but back then that wasn't the case. So we felt like we had something that people were interested in, but we still couldn't really get people to stake. Right. We couldn't get this flywheel going. And so when we changed the monetary policy and said, you know, we're going to go from this fixed supply of 100 million tokens, which is another dumb meme, right? Um, I think you can go back to the ERC-20 standard, right, to uh, to talk about that. Because, you know, in the token standard, it says, how many tokens do you want? And you just put a number in and that's the end, right? And now you have that many tokens, whether it's, you know, 50 or, or 50 billion. So the idea of having like a fixed supply of tokens and they're all emitted, you know, at Genesis and then that's it. Um, I think was was not very useful. Now what you have oftentimes is people will create a certain amount of tokens and they'll hold some in a DAO treasury and they're paid out as incentives over time. But synthetics is actually different. Like we genuinely changed the monetary policy where there are more tokens every week. Like there's actual inflation. Like the total supply of tokens on, on the contract changes on a weekly basis. It goes up, right? Um, it's something that people I don't think even necessarily realize. Um, like you can still work out what the total supply of tokens will be, you know, um, at the end. And then there's like terminal inflation, but like it's, it's not a standard ERC 20 token in that sense. And so, um, so we worked out a way by paying incentives to people to stake the token, to get that flywheel going and, and get people to actually learn how to stake, why you stake, what the benefits are, et cetera. Um, and I think that that was one of the big drivers of, uh, of adoption. And I think that that's something that a lot of protocols have now subsequently used to say, okay, well, we'll pay out our own tokens to get you to do the internal function, not just liquidity provisioning externally in Sushi or Balancer or Uniswap or whatever, but also internally. Uh, but I still think it's an underutilized mechanism. I think, I think there's, there's more, um, there's more opportunity to use it than, than it's being used right now. Really? I feel like it's being used so much. So again, like the liquidity provisioning externally, I think is overused, right? You know, the, no. the idea of like pool twos and creating as much liquidity or whatever, mm-hmm. paying out tokens to your users or to the people who are providing the service that you need internally. I think there's still a lot more, like mm-hmm. it's one of those things where like people are doing it, but they're just doing it the same dumb way over and over, right? Like there's a, a larger design space, right? Like people mm-hmm. haven't explored it as much as they could. Um, and I think that there's still room for experimentation there. So interesting. Um, okay, want to move on to uh, optimism um, because, like, okay, you were first on many things. We're also first on moving to optimism. So, um, what's that experience been like, and why did you choose this specific uh, scaling platform? 
Um, I think one thing that comes to mind as, as you say that is maybe being first to everything is not uh, <laughs> not the best thing ever. Um, and I think this is this is um, a very good example of that. Um, you know, I have uh, I have I think multiple um, sort of allegiances here, right? Like I'm <clears throat> I'm aligned to synthetics specifically. I'm a token holder. Um, I'm aligned to Ethereum more generally because I believe that the Ethereum ecosystem is is you know the um, uh, most likely ecosystem to kind of survive and, and get through to this next phase, right? And then I'm aligned to like crypto more generally, right? Like even if Ethereum isn't the optimal solution, if it's something else, I believe that what crypto is doing and and you know generally what what's driving this um, is something that is is going to transform society in, in a very positive way, right? So I've got these different layers, right? Um, so pushing synthetics, which we had to do, we didn't have an option, right? Like it wasn't like we were like, oh, let's go and you know do optimism because it'll be really good for Ethereum, right? It was like synthetics needs a scaling solution here. We had a whole bunch of uh, issues that we were facing around um, latency and oracles and, you know, transaction costs and, you know, synthetics transactions have always been very, very expensive. Even back when like it was, you know, Quay was, you know, 0.8, right? Like I remember putting in 0.8 GUI transactions. People would still be like, oh my God, this is like so crazily expensive. Like this transaction cost me like $2, right? And you're like, yeah, look, you know, they're complex contracts. Like that's just the way it goes, right? By the time we got to the peak, like it was costing people, you know, $500 to do a synthetics transaction. It's just crazy, right? It was just absolutely cost prohibitive. You couldn't, and synthetics forces you to transact regularly. You got to claim all the time. You got to rebalance your collateral ratio. You can't just dump money in a pool and come back six months later, right? You've got to be doing things on a, on a constant basis. And so we had to do this. But even if we didn't, I still think that someone had to be the guinea pig, right? Someone had to be the, the project that was willing to say, you know, roll-ups are the solution. We're going to do this. This is the optimal way of scaling um, <clears throat> complex smart contracts. Let's go through the pain. Um, and we did, and it was a lot of pain and it took us, you know, um, I think yesterday was actually the, the one year anniversary of us being live on optimism, right? Um, it was a long process of going from live, you know, we still don't have all the contracts, uh, you know, fully deployed on, uh, on optimism and, and transition from L1. There's still legacy contracts on, on L1. Um, so it's been a painful process, but I think if you ask me, like, would I do it again? Um, you know, weighing up all of my allegiances that I have personally, like even as a synthetics token holder, even if you said, you know, well, okay, the price action of SNX has been, uh, you know, which a lot of people are very happy to say has been terrible last year. You know, everything else went up 100x and, and SNX, you know, was was down 20% or, or whatever it was, you know, year on year. Um, I still think that I would say as a token holder, I would vote for us to do that. Because where if, if we hadn't have done it, and someone, you know, and Optimism had waited six months to find someone who was willing to do that, we'd still be six months out from, you know, getting to this point of scaling. Now, <clears throat> I think we have, um, you know, we have a situation where um, we're pretty much ready to scale. You know, the whitelist has been removed from Optimism. Um, you know, this competitive pressure within the ecosystem. Arbitrum has been, you know, forced to kind of, you know, do a whole bunch of things. We're seeing forks. Of, um, of optimism and arbitrum, you know, competing with them. So we've got a much more competitive ecosystem. And I think that that just required people to jump in, you know, and say, let's, let's do this, even if that meant a lot of pain and going through that process. 
Okay, but why specifically optimism? Like, why go, why um, optimism and not arbitrum or, or not uh, like CK uh, rollups or um, Polygon or like, I don't know, like another, there are like many different options uh, you potentially could have done. Um, so why this one specifically? So sidechains, um, I think we ruled out pretty early. Um, you know, obviously we talked to the XI team early on, right? And, and, you know, we said, we just don't think that this is uh, a good idea to be, you know, creating these side chains, you know, whether they're application specific or whatever. I think there are a lot of people who are really excited about that early. And I just was never a big fan of it. I think it didn't make that much sense. Um, so even Polygon. Now, in hindsight, if I could do things differently, I would say, actually, we would put synthetics on Polygon straight away and just, you know, hold our nose and say it's not optimal, but it's better than waiting, you know, 18 months for, uh, for optimistic rollups to be ready for production. But, you know, I think, uh, in this space where, <clears throat> pardon me, um, where, you know, we're like, um, we're very like, you know, no pun intended. We're very optimistic, right? Like we like the things that think that things will be, um, sort of ready faster than, than they might be. Um, so, you know, we were hoping that optimism and, and optimistic rollups would be ready sooner. So that was the reason why no side chains. Um, in terms of why optimism over um, Arbitrum, we knew the team, we liked their approach, we liked how they were um, doing things. And we just thought, you know, their approach made sense. Um, and, and, you know, That was that was kind of it. And then I think the final question of like why not uh, zero knowledge um, approaches. So like the zero knowledge rollups are not ready is the answer, right? And if we'd been waiting for zero knowledge rollups, then we'd still be waiting, right? They're still you'd not still quite there. Waiting, yeah. yeah. Um, Starkware. The challenge is that unlike DYDX, we don't have any off-chain uh, state um, uh, storage, right? Like all of our state is is on-chain, and so Starkware just isn't. The optimal solution for that whereas things like diversify and dydx because they've got these off-chain uh auto matching systems and, and state management systems it's much more amenable um, to that approach Starknet obviously changes that but Starknet is still you know not quite ready for something as complex as, as synthetics um so you know again we picked the thing we thought was going to be ready sooner it was not ready as soon as we had hoped, but I still think, you know, today, the position we're in, we're in a very good position. I think both Ethereum and Synthetics is in a very good position. We've suffered a lot for it over the last year, but, you know, ultimately, um, the only thing that we could have done that would have been more optimal, I think, would have been going to Polygon first and trying to run things in parallel while we waited to get Optimism ready to go. From now, like, how long do you realistically think, um, like, all the contracts will be deployed on Optimism and, like, things will be kind of ready to go and, and kind of scale from there? I think we're, you know, I hesitate to make uh, timeline predictions, but I think we're getting very close to, like, the what we call the V2X scope, which was <clears throat> everything up to merging the two networks. Right. So, you know, we've got staking on both networks. We need to merge those two networks so that the synthetic assets are fungible across both Optimism and L1. Um, we're probably uh, like, you know, on the order of like months away from that process uh, being completed. So once that's completed, that's the end of 
our V2X scope, right? Um, this is like Ethereum 1X, right? Versus Ethereum 2. We split the teams and said, okay, the V3 team that's going and building Synthetics V3, you guys go off. Don't be distracted by, you know, all the fires that are over here in, in this production system, um, which is now, you know, four years old and, and has a whole bunch of tech debt. Like go off in a vacuum, work on a new architecture, new implementations of all of these different systems, and we'll give you the space to do it. And we won't pull you back into this because that was the same thing that happened you know, with Ethereum, right? It's like these teams were still talking to each other and you could, until the, the split happened, um, you know, I, I don't think that... Um, the the progress was nearly as fast once you once that split happened and all the the um you know e2 teams had independence and, and could kind of go out i think that's when really progress ramped up and we saw that process it's slightly different with synthetics but you know similar idea of like you can't be maintaining a production system and also building the new thing you've got to have mm-hmm. some you know uh differentiation so we did that um so i think the v2x scope is almost done um and then the other piece of scope which is still uh, floating around that hasn't been deployed yet is futures. So, you know, synthetic uh, futures or perpetual futures that will allow people to have leverage, trade, you know, Bitcoin with 5, 10x leverage, etc., um, which obviously competes directly with ZYDX. That has been ready to be delivered for a long time, but couldn't be mm-hmm. delivered until we were on optimism um, just because of latency issues with oracles and, and things like that. So we needed that scalability. Um, so it's getting close. Um, again, uh, both of these things are close. I think we're mm-hmm. on the order of like, you know, probably uh, a couple of months for, for both of them. Um, but, you know, I've said that before. So I'm, I'm hesitant to, to, you know, put out uh, time predictions, unfortunately. I, I totally kind of get you like i've been saying a bunch of things about the defiant too like oh yeah it's a couple of weeks a couple of months <laughs> with our um yeah so anyways i yeah it's, it's how building goes right yeah exactly so what's next w- will be um merging um um like the current synthetics uh, protocol which is on mainnet to yep. staking which is now on optimism yeah, so basically, so we've got we've got basically two independent versions of the protocol running, um, and so we need to merge those two. Um, we need to implement all of the synthetic assets on L two. So at the moment, there's only three. Um, so we need to transition all the synthetic assets across. We need to make them fungible across both networks. So there's still a couple of things, um, and then we've we've had this, um, and this is uh, I think something that's kind of interesting um, that. You, it's really hard to kind of, you can sit there and theorize all day, right? About how things are going to play out, why things should be a certain way or whatever. Until you're actually dealing with it empirically, it's really hard, in, at least for me, right? Like I find this very hard to reason about what the challenges will be, right? So it, within optimistic rollups, you have this seven day challenge period, this withdrawal period, right? And, um, you know, everyone knew. Everyone was like, oh, this is a thing, whatever. I don't think anyone really truly understood the pain of having that uh, within you know the user experience until they kind of experienced it themselves. I deal with it all the time now because I'm doing stuff on, on Optimism frequently. Um, you know, you forget to trigger a transaction to withdraw the assets and you assume that they're on L1 and then you come back and you're like, oh man, now I've got to wait another week, right? Like a week in crypto is a long time, right? And mm-hmm. so... 
So I think that what we found is that something that seemed like a theoretical annoyance is actually practically very, very challenging. And so Mm -hmm. what that's meant is that all of the people that have been working in this ecosystem have all been faced with this very practical friction point. And all of us independently have started thinking about like, oh, you know, how can I get around this? Like that, you're you're a problem solver, right? That's what you do in crypto. You're like, I've got this problem. I keep running into this wall. How do I work around it, right? And so various people in the synthetic ecosystem have been thinking about this over the last probably three or four months. And kind of independently, we've come up with this idea of you could actually use synths as a fast withdrawal bridge, right? Um, and, and I tweeted about this the other day. You could create a mechanism whereby there's a relayer that doesn't require a multi-sig. Um, it's a relayer that you know uses two contracts that are, are both on the different networks, right? Um, and gives you much stronger security. Um, obviously, you still have this collateralized stablecoin underpinning all of it, right? So there's there's some you know um, there's different security concerns around that um, that mechanism. But in terms of the bridges themselves, they're they're pretty simple and straightforward, right? It's the mechanism to allow the bridges to exist. It's complex, right? Um, and so you could have this situation where since you know SUSD could act as a fast withdrawal bridge once the sins are fungible. And I don't think it really occurred to anyone, A, that this would be such a big problem to the point where we started thinking about solutions to it, or B, until we started actually doing the feasibility to build a synth bridge across there. We didn't really dig into it enough to be like, oh, wait, there's these interesting properties where I could bypass this big problem that I've been dealing with for the last couple of months. And so independently, two or three of the engineers and myself have all kind of come to this like conclusion that actually since as a fast withdrawal bridge are probably one of the optimal solutions to this problem. Um, so hopefully once we get through this debt pool merge, um, you know, in the next like month or two, uh, then we'll be able to start work on these, like what we call teleporters, right. Which will um, significantly reduce the friction of dealing with L1 and L2. I think all of us were like, this is a bad thing, but everyone will deal with it. Uh, honestly, I don't think people will deal with it. It's yeah. too high friction. Oh, it's too is- painful. It's painful. Much. It's very painful. Yeah. This is so interesting. So, so synthetics might become also like a bridge between optimism and mainnet. And do you think that yeah. this will be only for synthetics users or maybe like anyone could use this bridge? So it kind of goes back to the point around uh, why we started yield farming with Uniswap, right? Okay, great. You're in the synthetics ecosystem. Awesome. You have a bunch of synthetic BTC and you want to get back them to L1. Cool, right? But how does that help the average person, right? Who doesn't have a bunch of synths? Well, we actually have a solution to this already on mainnet through Curve, right? Which is cross-asset swaps. Um, so we've got a, a couple of different ways that you can do cross-asset swaps. So you could, in theory, using Curve, um, or you know something similar on L1 and L2. Um, you could start with, let's say, wrapped Bitcoin on L2. You could go into synthetic Bitcoin on L2 through Curve, through a, a, you know, a, a shared pool. You could then take that synthetic Bitcoin and use a synth teleporter to instantaneously, or you know, within a few seconds, get onto mainnet as synthetic BTC. And then you could exit that synthetic BC, BTC through another Curve pool back into wrapped BTC. With pretty low fees, right? Um, you know, obviously there's going to be fees there, but um, you know, you might pay half a percent or you know, like fifty basis points, sixty basis points, etc. Um, but that seven days, you know, the time value of money in crypto is extremely yeah. high, right? Seven days it's of sitting there with your wrap Bitcoin, and you know, especially when you think about volatile assets. And I think, to be honest, this is the thing. And, you know, you think later, like, wow, what an idiot I was. Like, how was that not obvious to me? But, like, the other day, I withdrew a bunch of ETH. 
right? Um, through the optimism bridge. And I was like, wait a second. I now have like this weird situation where I've got a bunch of ETH that's like transitioning across. And like, I have no, like the price is moving up so and down. Scary. And, yeah, it's like, it is a bit scary to like be like, all right, you like put your, mm-hmm. you know, assets in a little capsule and like send it off and then wait for it mm-hmm. to come back on the other side. Right. Um, I don't think that's a common thing in crypto to deal with. And so it's just a, a weird piece of friction that I don't think practically that many people thought through. Um, we knew it was going to be annoying, but it's actually much more than annoying. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think this is something that a lot of people are thinking about solutions for. You know, Hop is looking at solving this. Uh, Seller connects. There's a bunch of people that have been thinking about this for a long time. They knew that this was going to be a problem. Certainly, myself, I didn't think it was going to be as much of a problem as as it actually is practically for my own use case. After after this is done, then um, futures like perpetual yeah. swaps. And perpetual so on. swaps. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to touch on just uh, to to start uh, wrapping up uh, this like big. Um, controversy that there was around uh, one of your your statements um recently so you said that people you respect have sold out in pursuit of profit uh, maximization but they'll come back to ethereum one layer two scaling becomes inevitable and then uh suzu uh from three hours cap kind of like <laughs> took, took that on me. and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I'd love to kind of um, hear like more more on this on not necessarily kind of this pad on on Twitter, which like really snowballed, but just like the mm. initial statement. Yeah. So you know, I think I have a view that it's good that Ethereum, the community, takes the high ground in most of these debates, right? Most of the the people who are in Ethereum are pretty high conviction. Right. Um, you know, uh, certainly the people who've been around for a long time. Right. Um, they're they're very convicted if, across a number of different um, viewpoints. Right. They're convicted that like Ethereum is optimal scaling solution and that, you know, we will make the right decisions as a community around how we scale this thing. And we won't, um, you know, take shortcuts or make trade offs that will have consequences down the road. Right. Um, we'll make the hard decisions and we'll deal with the pain of those hard decisions, right? Like we did with optimism, where we had a year of pain, right? In, in choosing that path. But now we're in a position where this year everyone's going to forget. Everyone will forget last year, right? Like people in crypto have very short memories, right? So we said, you know what? We'll take that pain for a year as we try to scale this thing. But by next year, you know, the, the L222 meme, right? Um, we're going to be in a position where everyone's going to be like, Oh, this is amazing. And they'll forget that it wasn't like that last year. They'll they'll just you know go into it. And so I think when you have that high conviction, it's easy to kind of sit back and and take the high road and say we're not going to get dragged into these fights around you know what's better or whatever. We'll we'll have you know we'll let people um, fud Ethereum and say that you know Ethereum doesn't care about users or it doesn't care about transaction costs or doesn't care about all of these things that you know they've been saying we we also you know and there are people in the community that do fight back against this stuff right um but most don't most just say well i'm not going to get involved in in this bickering and in your argumentation on on twitter i'm just going to go and keep building and doing my thing um the problem with that is that you have so many new people coming to the space and they see these prominent people taking advantage of Ethereum and, and taking advantage of the fact that we don't fight back. And 
you know, allowing them to make outrageous statements that are, um, <coughs> you know, inaccurate or, or, you know, outright lies, right? Um, and there's not really a lot of pushback, you know, because we're like, oh, we're over here building, you know, flowers and rainbows and unicorns and, and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, which is amazing. And I love that about the Ethereum community. But like, we also exist in a marketplace. And if we let people take advantage of us, it's going to be a problem. So yeah, so I think you have this situation in Ethereum where, you know, we might not uh, fight back um, enough or, or fight back as much as we should. Um, and my view was that, you know, if you're going to have these people that are willing to, you know, criticize and attack Ethereum when, uh, you know, it's it's profitable for them, um, our conviction says that, you know, we're eventually going to get back to a position where Ethereum, um, you know, is... Uh, in the ascendancy again, and, and you know, we kind of take back the narrative once scaling happens, etc. When that happens, these people who are you know low conviction, who don't really care, who are happy to kind of bounce around and you know uh, shill whatever thing is is going to you know um, make them the most money uh, at whatever time, are going to obviously come back to Ethereum, and then they're going to be sitting here you know pretending like they were Ethereum cheerleaders this whole time. And my point was just that we should be wary of people like that and we shouldn't allow them to exploit us and take advantage of, of us um and that's it um and obviously you know for someone who is in the process of doing that um you know that's not something uh that they like to hear um but that's just the reality just like to to clarify the bigger point it's um to you it's about you are very highly convinced that ethereum is going to be Uh, it's it's the most likely to be the winning um, layer one for decentralized finance and Web3 and that it's going to scale with layer two solutions based on Ethereum layer one um, and that we're on the road to get there. And, you know, like, as you've said, it's it's tough right now, but it's like everyone is building towards um, a, a period when Ethereum uh, dApps can scale. And in the meantime, what bothers you is um, investors who have hugely benefited from Ethereum are, are now cashing out and going to Ethereum competitors in this time when Ethereum is kind of in the process of getting there, like getting to scaling. I don't even have so much of an issue with that, right? Like if someone decides that they don't like Ethereum anymore and they want to go somewhere else, fine. Like do like you do you do whatever works for you, right? My point was actually more about when we inevitably do start scaling, and you know when Ethereum kind of takes back the narrative. Just be aware of who those people were, because they will absolutely come flooding back and be like, "Hey guys, we're back! Isn't Ethereum amazing again?" And you need to, you know, we need to kind of have longer memories than than we do sometimes. So we need to be, um, you know, more protective of the ecosystem now. People push back on that initial sentiment and said, no, we should welcome people with open arms, whatever. But my view is like, if people are going to exploit the Ethereum ecosystem, we shouldn't welcome those people with open arms. Like, that's just like not a great way to approach things. Um, now, maybe that's too exclusionary or whatever. As I said, you know, Ethereum's very like flowers and, and rainbows and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I love that aspect of Ethereum. Um, but I also think we exist in a market and I think that we need to be you know, more protective of Ethereum, especially as the stakes get larger and larger, right? There's a lot of money at stake and there's a lot of value at stake for people to criticize and attack Ethereum. Um, you know, and we just need to be prepared to defend against that. We have to be. Do you see any um, 
future where there is more than than Ethereum, where it's you know like a multi-chain future, a cross-chain future. Maybe Ethereum is good for specific use cases, but other chains will be better for other use cases. I think my view has been for a while that it will be a winner-take-most situation. I think the uh, the chain that can credibly scale um, and maintain uh, you know decentralization will be the chain that most of the value settles on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now, in my view, that is very likely to be Ethereum. But as I kind of said earlier, I've got three allegiances here. Like, you know, there's the synthetics one and then, you know, there's the Ethereum one and then there's the broader crypto one. If Ethereum is not the right solution, and I don't personally believe there's evidence to say that it isn't yet, I still believe very strongly that it is. But if I have evidence the contrary, I will change my opinion and I'll say, okay, Ethereum, you know, it wasn't the optimal solution. There was something else that was better out there. Um, and I'll absolutely, you know, put my weight behind that. Um, but for right now, at least to me, um, you know, and obviously, um, I'm an uh, Ethereum OG, so I've, you know, got some bias there. Um, but I still, you know, I believe that hopefully, uh, my track record of you know changing my mind when the evidence changes is sufficient to you know for people to believe that I have credibility when it comes to saying that I think Ethereum is the the optimal solution right now you know mm-hmm. but I mean each each to their own I guess some people think that that's not credible. Do you have any investments in other layer ones? I don't. Um, you know, back in the day uh, when I was like trading crypto, um, you know, going back to like whatever, 2015, 2016, um, I definitely had uh, other things. I think I, I even held some um, ADA at one point, um, but, uh, you know, not really meaningfully. But, you know, these days, really, my focus is, uh, is on the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, so I don't tend to invest in anything outside of the Ethereum ecosystem. We've talked about kind of near-term goals and milestones that you're working towards. What's a big term vision? Like where would you want synthetics to be five years from now? Or I don't know, what's kind of like the end game? I think that synthetics is a very novel approach to this idea of you know creating synthetic assets, right? Um, it's, it's not a solution that many people have tried. Um, they've tried variants of it, but, uh, but it still remains even to this day fairly novel. Um, and so I do think that um, it's hard to say how that exactly is going to play out. But my hope is that what you have are more protocols that are leveraging uh, synthetics to build novel things. So Lyra is a great example of that. Um, you know, even uh, Thales uses, uh, you know, both of these are options protocols that use synthetics. Um, Dhedge uses synthetics. So I think that synthetics has some very novel properties that make it very good um, for protocols to compose, um, you know, to integrate into their their own um, their own smart contract suites. Um, the challenge with that historically has been that we haven't had um, atomic transactions on L1 for a really long time. On layer two, on Optimism, we have atomic transactions, uh, which means that it's much easier for other, um, you know, protocols to integrate synthetics. So my hope is that over the next, you know, three, four, five years, synthetics becomes, you know, even more deeply embedded in the ecosystem and, and more protocols are using it to build you know, novel solutions on top of. Do you see it competing with DYDX or more with um, Terra and like Mirror and like UST or, or both? Like what direction would you want it to, to take? You know, if we go down this path of being kind of very application specific as in like, you know, synthetic futures, and that is the thing that drives adoption, then I think 
the community needs to lean into that. And, and, you know, certainly in the near future, as I said earlier, speculation is a big driver of activity. Um, and so in the short term, that may be the, the optimal path to just keep focusing on that. Um, but what we found is that even while we focus on, you know, the trading experience, there's always people coming in and turning up, you know, Andre is a great example of this. He turns up, and he's like, Oh, well, could I use synthetics for this? And we're like, yeah, you could. And you know, we talk it through and, and work out a way to, to kind of, you know, build these, uh, sort of more, um, infrastructural style integrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that as much as we're pushing the product focus, um, my hope is that we will also see, um, you know, a, uh, a, kind of this base layer synthetics uh you know utility that people can integrate into um so i think they're kind of parallel paths this has been an amazing conversation i'm so grateful for you taking the time and and sharing all your views and experience with us um i guess like final final question since we're this is the second podcast of the year what are you looking forward to in in 2022 for for DeFi and web3 the point that like layer two scaling is actually working and we're basically there, you know, depending on, on what your application is, whether it's, um, <coughs> DYDX on stockware or, um, you know, Arbitrum and optimism. Um, I think we're at a point now where we're seeing layer two native protocols being built and they're doing novel things you just can't do on L1. Um, and so I'm very excited to see people really lean into that experimentation and say, okay, we're going to, you know, start playing around with, with kind of novel solutions. And I think we're going to see some really interesting stuff uh, built out on, on, you know, Optimism and Optrum this year. Nice. L222, or I don't know how exactly. you say that means. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> fine. L222, yeah, that's good. <laughs> All right. Well, Kane, thanks again. Amazing having a DeFi OG uh, on the Defiant podcast to start of the year. Um, appreciate it. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Kami. Really appreciate you having me on. And before we close, here's another word about our awesome sponsors. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure you're getting the best possible price. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha directs your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, Phantom, and Avalanche to find the best price without taking any commissions. Matcha splits your order across multiple liquidity sources. It also allows you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your trades. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp to purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card. Head over to matcha.xyz defiant and connect your wallet to start trading. Nexo is a crypto lending and exchange platform where you can buy crypto at the touch of a button using your credit or debit card and start earning double-digit annual interest that is paid out daily. Nexo supports all of the major digital assets, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Polygon, and Polkadot. You can also borrow cash and stablecoins tax-efficiently against your digital assets without selling them. Nexo complies with high security standards and is audited in real time. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. Whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most out of your crypto today at nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O dot I-O. Unstoppable Domains is the number one provider of NFT domains. With your unique NFT domain, such as camilla.crypto or camilla.nft, 
You can replace your long, complex wallet addresses, verify ownership of your NFTs, log in to Web3 apps, and join tens of thousands of people using them as their Twitter usernames. Better yet, with unstoppable domains, you don't have to worry about gas or renewal fees. Also, you will own them forever. Go to unstoppabledomains.com and get yourname.crypto.nft or a range of other endings for as low as five bucks. Sirion is mission control for Web3, giving users the ability to trade DeFi tokens, transfer assets across chains, and show off their NFT collections all in one place. Sirion offers a multi-chain experience with asset tracking and trading across seven networks, including Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, and BSC, so you'll never miss an opportunity waiting on gas fees to drop. NFT owners can also see their favorite collectibles and art as widgets on their iPhones or Apple Watches and send them to friends and family in a few clicks. Users can explore every corner of the metaverse with Sirion from their web, desktop, and mobile apps. Head to Sirion.io to connect your wallet and get started today. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.